so, they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. The day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and have Jesus, to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas! Barabbas. What shall I do, then, with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Crucify, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered. His, His blood, blood is, is on us and on, and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, and then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Ha ha! Hail, King of the Jews! They said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe, put, on his, own, put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. 
those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to him. A loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They'd followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Thank you to those who did that reading for us. Uh, and good morning, everyone. My name is Jack. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, and we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, in that story, uh, that story that sits at the centre and the heart of our faith. So uh, keep your Bibles open uh, and we'll make our way through it. Well, I was on a youth camp uh, a little while ago. New Year's Eve had ticked over into New Year's Day. And the youth had been somewhat successfully ushered back to their rooms. And it was 1am, I was heading out the door, my bed just a few metres away, when someone came up and said, I've got a theological question. (laughs) And I thought to myself, do you? (laughs) Do you really? At 1am, it's a long camp. Um, But I composed myself, uh, and in God's mercy, I, I restrained those selfish impulses in myself and gestured politely for them to continue. Uh, And I'm glad I did, of course, because they had a great question, as often is the case at 1am. They asked, do you ever feel that this is all just a bit unreal? Don't get me wrong, I love being a Christian, I believe it, but every so often it feels like I stand outside of myself and I just look in and I just wonder whether I've just got this all wrong. It just kind of feels unreal. I'm basing my whole life on an obscure event nearly 2,000 years ago where a Jewish rabbi dies on a cross. What if I'm wrong? I want to believe, but sometimes that faith jump 
just feels too far? It was such a great question. But it was such a great question because it summed up what is, I think, a pretty universal doubt for all of us. My guess is that for all who are here that believe, you've felt this and wondered this. There is this sort of strange and profound disjuncture that can occur when we think about our faith, when we think about what we believe in. Not least because the air that we breathe is one of materialism, where we reject the idea of the miraculous and the supernatural, where we prize empiricism, where truth is known via our senses, those things that can be scientifically proven, and yet the main truth in our life is largely a supernatural claim. It's a claim that can never be proved, or disproved for that matter, by empirical tools such as science. And so they can often feel like there is a gap, a profound gap. And if you are here this morning and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, you're exploring faith and the sense of believing, then potentially you feel this in a different form. Maybe you want to believe, you admire people who do believe, maybe you love the community, but you just can't get your head around the strangeness that sits at the heart of it all. The strangeness that is a dead God on a cross. Well, belief and faith can be hard in the 21st century. Uh, and it always, always, almost always comes with doubts as well. And so this morning, we're going to be exploring these ideas of faith and belief as we think about this story from Matthew 27, uh, as it's told in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, so I'm going to pray, uh, and then we're going to jump into the story. Let me pray for us. Come together as your people to remember the cross Father, I pray that you would help our hearts to see Jesus, to know Jesus, and to have confidence in what lies in the heart of our faith. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would be at work, speaking to us, bringing comfort to those who need comfort, bringing rebuke to those who need rebuke, and by bringing assurance of what it is that your son Jesus has done for us. And so, Father, we pray all of this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, have Matthew 27 open, and we start there in verse 1, and we begin the story through this episode in the early morning. Uh, Jesus, having just been betrayed by Judas, arrested the night before, the dawn rises, and the chief priests and the elders take Jesus and hand him over to Pilate, the Roman governor. Uh, the background here is that Judea is, a Roman, is under Roman occupation, uh, and so the Jewish leaders can't put Jesus to death. They need permission from the Roman authorities. But before we get there, Matthew, the author of this account, takes a bit of a detour. We do a little bit of a left turn. Uh, you can see it there in verses 3 to 10. Uh, you could easily jump from verses 2 to 11, and the story would just continue on. But Matthew clearly wants to get something across. He wants to highlight something that's going to shape our thinking as Jesus goes to the cross. So he adds in this story, and it's the story of Judas, the betrayer. Uh, and it's all about Judas's remorse. Uh, having betrayed Jesus, having done the deed, 
Judas, we read, is now overcome with guilt. And we have this fascinating little episode where he returns the 30 pieces of silver. The leaders reject it because that would have been an admission uh, that Jesus wasn't guilty. And yet Judas knows the Old Testament law, and the law states that a person guilty of false testimony should be put to death. And so Judas, when the chief priests won't enforce the law, enforces the law himself, and so goes out and hangs himself. Judas is guilty, but all he has is his own works to save him. And so the personal tragedy of Judas is complete. Now, there's a lot in this story, there's a lot going on there, but for our purpose this morning, Matthew inserts this story at this point so that we view the rest of the story through a particular lens. And this is the bit I want to highlight. Matthew puts these words in the mouth of Jesus' betrayer. Verse 4, Judas says, I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Uh, Matthew is at pains here to make sure that we realise that Jesus is innocent. Everything that is going to happen from this point on happens to an innocent man. This is a story of injustice. Jesus has done nothing to deserve what is about to happen to him. And so with that fixed in our minds, we can jump back into the story at verse 11. And Matthew comes back to the main thread of the story. Verse 11, meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. This, by the way, is one of only two times that we're going to hear Jesus' voice in this story, because for the rest of the time, Jesus is silent. We see that in verse 12. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Here then is an innocent man, Jesus, who gives no defence as a gross injustice is perpetrated against him. And it's interesting as we go through the story, Pilate realises that he is innocent. Again, Matthew throws in a little aside. Verse 19, we get this funny little story. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But even knowing that he is innocent, Judas, sorry, Pilate here is in a bind because he is trapped between the chief priests who he needs to appease in order to ensure peace in Judea and any inclination he has towards justice. But he has one more cardinal conundrum that he's in to get him off the hook. And he remembers that there's this tradition, a tradition that allows him to release a prisoner at the festival of Passover. And so Pilate takes a guilty man, Barabbas, and offers to release either Barabbas or the innocent Jesus. But the crowd, incited by the chief priests and the elders, demand the release of the guilty Barabbas and the crucifixion of the innocent Jesus. 
And as the crowd grows louder and louder, as it whips itself into a frenzy, as, as it was beautifully acted out before, as the calls of crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, echo around the governor's palace, Pilate capitulates. He washes his hands and uses that word again. Verse 24, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. And so the innocent Jesus stands in the place of a guilty man and suffers the punishment. And he mounts no defence, he speaks no words, he lets it happen. And so from verse 27 to 44, Jesus is crucified. And this section details how he is brutalised, tortured and humiliated. How he is beaten, whipped, mocked, a crown of thorns forced onto his head. And then the criminals who are crucified next to him deride him. The chief priests and the teachers of the law mock him. From the common man to the elite. In the same way that the crowd bade for his blood, so to the very end he is hounded and harassed and humiliated. Now, it's kind of hard to really describe just how weird this is. Mostly because we live in the shadow of the cross and its implications. And we sort of see the cross as a noble sacrifice. We know the story. But the thing is, nobody was thinking that back then. The idea of a noble sacrifice is not a category that anybody had. Because in the ancient world, crucifixion equals shame and humiliation. It was a mixture of both torture and execution that embodied Rome's power and domination of the weak. It was a way to show that Rome's enemies were not just defeated, but utterly crushed. Uh, On the slide, Cicero, uh, the Roman statesman who was alive during the life of Jesus, he describes crucifixion as this, a most cruel and disgusting punishment. The very mention of the cross should be far removed not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. In fact, it was a punishment so horrifying that it was reserved for slaves and non-Roman. Cicero, again, it is a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To scourge him is a wickedness. To put him to death is almost parricide. But what shall I say of crucifying him? So guilty an action cannot by any possibility be adequately expressed by any name bad enough for it. This is crucifixion. And that's before going into the gory detail of how crucifixion was designed for maximum pain and humiliation. In fact, it was such a source of shame that it's not positively depicted in Christian art until around 400 years later. There's a picture on the screen. Again, this is probably the first bit of artwork that we actually see of the cross. And it's 400 years later because of the shame associated with this. Uh, And even actually in that picture, it's still a highly sanitised version. Jesus doesn't look to be in pain. He looks in great peak physical condition. It takes a while for it. It's still coming down to show the actual pain that would have been in the artwork. 
But it leaves us with an incredibly profound question. Why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus stay silent? He was innocent. If he spoke out, if he invoked justice, he could have been saved. He endured all of this as an innocent man. But he was also the son of God, right? He had the power to stop this all. In fact, the mockers who stood at the foot of the cross were accidentally right in their mocking. You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. They meant it as a joke. But he could have. But he does And the humiliation are total. In fact, the only line that Matthew records of Jesus at the cross is the famous cry of dereliction. Verse 46, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you can understand why he says this when we consider the perversity, the horror of what is actually happening. As the eternal Son of God looks into the abyss of death as it opens up in front of him. As the Word of God that lovingly created the human body becomes human and experiences the evil of torture where the good creation of the human body is physically ripped apart for maximal pain. As the one who is all that is good and true and beautiful experiences the ultimate evil, succumbs to the lies of others and faces the ugly reality of the most depraved death imaginable. But the innocent Jesus endures it all. He experiences all. He takes it all in his body until, verse 50, the unthinkable happens. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Jesus, eternally begotten of the Father, the Word became flesh, the messianic king was dead. Now think about the implications of this for a moment. If what Matthew is saying is true, then you would expect there to be some sort of reaction. Because let's face it, in one sense, there actually isn't anything strange about what happens to Jesus. Innocent people face injustice every day on this planet. The weak are despised, the powerless are dominated by those in power, slaves are considered subhuman, and so are tortured and put to death on a whim. That happens every single day, every single hour on this planet. So is this anything different? Is Jesus just another in a long line of battered, abused and broken victims? Or is something else happening here? Because if Matthew's claim is true, then we are talking about a mind-blowing claim. We are talking about a claim that the divine has seen the suffering of the weak and in love entered into our world in order to stand next to and endure the very same suffering that those victims who experience injustice every day experience. 
The divine has endured suffering, evil, even death itself. And if this is true, then you would expect some sort of reaction, right? Some sort of guttural groan from the world itself as its creator and sustainer dies. Which is then the point of verses 51 and 53. At the moment of the divine's death, there is a cosmic convulsion. I wonder if your eyes glazed over at this point when it was read out. We think, wait, hold on, that's crazy. What's going on there? Have a look at verses 51 and 53. Read with me there. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. What a strange three verses. Well, there are a few things in this. Number one, the temple curtain is torn. Why this detail? Well, because it demonstrates that the entire sacrificial system upon which the temple is based is now obsolete because the ultimate sacrifice has just occurred. The sacrifice of which all other sacrifices have pointed to and find their ultimate fulfilment in has happened. There is no need for the sacrificial system anymore. Number two, there is a literal reaction from the earth itself. As an earthquake cracks through the city, shaking the earth and breaking rocks, it is though the world itself groans at the atrocity of what has just happened. And then thirdly, in the moment of death, the dead come alive. There is resurrection. And Matthew here kind of mashes the timing together to demonstrate that the death of Good Friday and the resurrection of Easter Sunday are essentially the same event. From death comes life. The evil of Friday becomes good. And from doubt comes faith. Look at verse 54. The first reaction that we get is one of faith. When the centurion, those with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. And clearly, Matthew here expects a reaction of faith to this event. In fact, in verse 53, he says that the dead people came out of their tombs and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, you only say that if you're 100% sure that it happened, (laughs) because that's a wild claim. But presumably, Matthew is saying to his readers, if you are unsure, find someone who was in Jerusalem at that time, and they will be able to corroborate that story. But I want to acknowledge that this is wild, right? This is very, very strange. This is an incredibly weird and strange story for us to wrap our heads around. And yet, I also want to say, if Jesus was who he said he was, then actually it makes complete sense. If Jesus was God in human flesh and he did die, you would expect this kind of reaction. 
But there's still a problem there for us, isn't there? Because what good is that cosmic convulsion to us now? We weren't there. It's still 2,000 years ago. We can't go into Jerusalem and ask anyone if they did actually see this. We can't hear their testimonies. It just seems like an event too far away. And maybe you're someone who's exploring your faith. You want to believe, but it just seems too far-fetched. We live in a scientific world. And if I've never experienced anything like this myself, if it just feels like myth, then how can I believe that it happened? 2,000 years ago, it's just too many jumps. And if you're a Christian, then maybe your doubts come in a form like this. Is it just a bit crazy that I've turned my life upside down, made decisions that sacrifice material happiness in this world, all on this weird and crazy event that happened 2,000 years ago? That's an incredibly legitimate doubt to have. Well, if this was truly a cosmic convulsion, if this was like the world's biggest depth charge, as one commentator has put it, thrown into the middle of the ocean, then we should expect to see the ripples flow through even to now, right? You see, if this was such a big event, then we should expect aftershocks. And I think that if we can believe in the aftershocks, then you're a lot closer to believing in the cause than perhaps you realise. Because we should be able to trace through history how this moment changed the world. If this was truly so significant, new ideas would be created. It should be a unique moment that created unique ideas. And if we can see that, then we can have confidence that this was not just another moment of injustice, but rather the moment that the divine experienced injustice in order to produce justice and redeem and save the world. So the question is, do we see that? And I think we see it everywhere. Let's just look at one of what I think of many ways that we see this occurred. We live in a world that has an assumption that the weak and the vulnerable should be protected. We live in a world where the thought of slavery is abhorrent, where humility is a virtue. There is a certain strength in being a victim. And yet, this idea that we assume was completely foreign in the world that Jesus entered. Because in the Roman world, the weak were despised. The slave is considered subhuman, and the domination of the powerful was simply the natural order. This was true in Greek thought, in Roman thought, in Persian thought, in Babylonian thought, in Egyptian thought. Historian and author of the acclaimed book Dominion, Tom Holland, he's not a Christian, he puts it like this. He says, crosses were billboards advertising the ability of Rome to crush rebellion by the weak. It served as a symbol of the powerful over the powerless. Now, Christianity absolutely upended that. It said the cross is a symbol of the powerless triumphing over the powerful, a symbol of the slave triumphing over the master, a symbol of the victim triumphing over the torturer. And this is such a radical notion that it is hard to express how radical it is. The idea that the last should be first, 
that there is an inherent dignity and value and indeed power in the victim would have been utterly bewildering to the Romans. And yet, this idea is taken for granted in the world that we live in, whether we're Christian or not. We live in a society where no matter how imperfectly that seeks to care for the weak and the vulnerable. If you volunteer in a soup kitchen, you're given a nod of respect, not a puzzled look of why would you do that. We have a justice system that seeks to treat all people equally regardless of rank or power. And the frustration that we feel when that principle is not upheld is itself evidence of this. And we don't look at the cross as a strangeness, but rather we see it as a symbol that is noble, that represents self-sacrifice, the elevation of the weak and the lowly, the very best of what it means to be human. And this idea can be traced back to the moment that this depth charge exploded, where the Almighty humbled himself, took on flesh and died on a cross. This moment where the powerful became weak, the eternal died for the mortal, the innocent for the guilty, a cosmic convulsion that we still live and experience every day. Tom Holland again. Today, the power of this strangeness remains as alive as it has ever been, and it is manifest in the great surge of conversions that has swept Africa and Asia over the past century, in the conviction of millions upon millions that the breath of the Spirit, like a living fire, still blows upon the world, and in Europe and North America, throw in Australia there as well, in the assumptions of millions who would never think to describe themselves as Christians, all are heirs to the same revolution. A revolution that has at its heart, a revolution that has at its molten heart, the image of a God dead upon an implement of torture. So if you find the story of this cross, unbelievable. Or if there are these doubts that are plaguing you, let me put it like this. If you can believe in the aftershocks of this moment, then you are not as far away as you think from believing in the cause. Because the idea that the weak and lowly should be given dignity and worth is not a self-evident idea. It is a faith position. A Darwinian evolutionary account of the world doesn't produce this answer. It gives you just the survival of the fittest. You can't draw this principle from science. You can't draw it from nature. You can't draw it from history. And you can't just rationally think your way there. As Tom Holland writes, this idea comes from a revolution in the first century that has at its heart the image of a god dead upon an implement of torture. But we need to look at one final thing before we finish, because we haven't quite answered the question of why would Jesus do this? Jesus is innocent. He's powerful enough to escape, and yet he endures. Why does he do it? Well, this is the message of Good Friday. Jesus came to bring a revolution, a revolution that would turn the world on its heart, but a revolution that came for you and me. You see, Jesus came for the Judases of the world. 
for the pilots of the world. He came to die and save the very soldiers who whipped, beat, and nailed him to the cross. And he came for the centurion. He came for the women who faithfully stood at the foot of the cross, the Mary's chief among them. And he has come for you and he has come for me. He has come for all who recognize their own weakness and frailty, who recognize that they are broken and dead inside, who are a shell of who they know they should be. The beauty of this is that we are all the Barabbases in this story. Guilty in so many, yet Good Friday tells us that Jesus stands in our place. He takes the punishment that should have been ours, and like Barabbas, we can go free. A second chance, new life. Good Friday reminds us that there is hope. There is reason for faith in this world. Because our God became weak, and we feel the aftershocks. And so this Good Friday, when you have doubts, when you think, can I really believe, when you think of God, don't think of a mysterious force or a distant old man in the sky because the picture that we have of God is one who in Jesus willingly came to save us. The picture we have of God is Jesus with his arms outstretched on the cross, bearing our pain and calling us home. It's a good Friday. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the way that it has utterly transformed our world. We pray particularly for the weak, for those who are suffering injustice at the moment. We thank you for the dignity that you have given them by entering into the same injustice, the same pain, enduring injustice and thank you that in doing you provided a way out and you provided a way for all of us to be with you thank you father for the cross and we pray this in your son's name amen